let the generations know that the women in uniform also guaranteed their freedom. That our resolve was just as great as the brave men who stood among us. And the victory, our hearts were just as full and beat just as fast as theirs. And that the tears fell just as hard for those we left behind. Jill Henry, Gordon Herbert, thank you both so much for coming on to the show today. It's a pleasure to have you. I think you're both doing some very important and great things. So again, it's a pleasure. Yeah, thank thank you you for inviting us. Absolutely. Absolutely. So Jill... You've, you're a veteran, of course, and you're doing great things for the military and women in the military. Real quick, could you just tell us what has your military career consisted of? Well, it began, um, well, short version is I was an Army nurse for 20 years, and specifically an Army nurse anesthetist. Um, I was recruited into the Army. I was I, born and raised here in Bloomington, and an Army recruiter came to the high school I was in the Future Nurses Club at Normal Community High School, Mm. and uh, the speaker that year was uh, an Army recruiter. And at the time, they were still recruiting for nurses for Vietnam. This was back in the 70s. Okay. But it was a full scholarship, and that's kind of what rang true to me. I really wasn't thinking too much about having to go to Vietnam at the time. I was still in high school. But uh, it was a full scholarship. It was a competitive program. There was about 2,000 applicants, and they accepted 150 so um, I was accepted. I made it in, full scholarship. After, so I had four years of school, um, finishing up at Walter Reed with my Bachelor's of Science in Nursing at uh, University of Maryland. Then I had to serve three years. I could have gotten out, but um, I wanted to, to stay in. And, of course, by the time I graduated, Vietnam was over. Mm-hmm. So we didn't have to go. And then the class after mine was the last class. So that program, it, I call it, it's like the West Point for nurses, only better. We were promoted um, greater than a, than a West Pointer. And we had that four years of school counted, which uh, doesn't count for West Pointer. So, so it was even, uh, it was a tremendous program. And I didn't know at the time what a wonderful program it was. And I just decided I, I was in Texas. I didn't really want to come home after three years. And so... Um, I stayed, went to anesthesia school. They, they paid for that. I had to serve another three years after anesthesia school. By then, I had 17 years in, so mm. I stayed another three and then retired at 20. So, Got it. Yeah. Wait, re- retired at 20? Oh, after 20, 20 years. 20 years, 20 years. of service. Yeah, okay. Yeah, right. Got it. So, so where did you – you actually served um, – you went to – Desert Storm, Operation Desert Storm, is that correct? As I a, did. And it's not an anesthetist, an anesthetist. Nurse, nurse anesthetist, right. right. Got it. Well, yeah. so, I mean, Desert Storm was a big part of the Gulf War. It was a massive operation that was um, led by President George Bush and the European Union to prevent Iraq from overtaking uh, Kuwait and correct. gaining control of the world's oils. And I mean, it was a short but really deadly war, if I understand correctly. More civilians, like hundreds of thousands of civilians in the Iraq area died, and tens of thousands of Iraqi troops died. Not that many European Union or United States troops died, but it was just, it was more crazy, I think, than people give it credit for. So what was your role in that war, and and what was the experience like? Yeah, well, yeah, I thought I was going to get through a whole career without ever having a war. You know, because that was towards the end of my career. And then, sure enough, Desert Storm came up. Um, you know, we had no control over where, if we were deployed or not. And just suddenly I got noticed that I was, um, I was at that time called a profus filler. 
and I was stationed at Fort Knox just doing my job. Um, and then they, uh, but I was assigned in the event of a war to uh, the 15th Evacuation Hospital, which was out of Fort Polk, Louisiana. So when I was notified that I was going to be deployed, then um, I went down to Fort Polk eventually, and then we did the, the final training. You know, we had to qualify on weapons and gas, you know, all that stuff, biological training, warfare, all that. And then we finally deployed in January of 91 that year with the 15th evac. And so basically you go over with a, an evacuation hospital is, can go up to 400 beds. We didn't put that many up at the time, but... Um, we went out in the uh, middle of nowhere. There was nothing around us at all. We flew into Dahran and then eventually made our way. But the, the scary part was they never told you anything. We didn't really know where we were going or when we were going. Um, I have to say, I always, you know, I always got fed. <laughs> I always, you know, all that kind of stuff. So the supply people were awesome. But, um, but we got there in the middle of nowhere. We were about uh, six miles south of the Iraqi border and 60 miles west of Kuwait City. And so, yes, very remote location for us. And as I spoke to other nurses along the way and later, we all had such very different experiences. I had a friend that was stationed in Dahran, and she went out on the town and ate out at night and, <laughs> you know, had laundry facilities and things like that. Well, that was not my case. And, um, you know, we, we survived on MREs for a long time. And I gained a lot of weight because there's a lot of calories in those. Those are designed for infantrymen, you know? Right, right. <laughs> so, so, yeah, I gained a lot of weight there. And, um, <laughs> yeah, so we set up a hospital and waited. And, and the thing was, and the last experiences that most people knew were Vietnam. So I kind of, in my mind, was anticipating, you know, the helicopters coming in, wounded soldiers, and lots of them, you know, like like you heard about in Vietnam. Um, mm. And luckily, that was not the case. But um, most of our patients were um, EPWs, enemy prisoners of war. Most of your patients were enemy prisoners of war. So I would assume Iraqi troops then is what that Iraqi means. Iraqi troops and Iraqi civilians. We got Very a lot of civilians after, you know, after the that 100-hour war mm. um, because they were, yeah, they were not taken care of. Basically, and and we also took care of medical issues too. I mean, not just injuries from the war. Now we also did, um, you know, American troops as well. And from that one hundred hour war, our hospital got six soldiers, and I ended up anesthetizing one of them. <laughs> so, so um, and then others. You know, I mean, things just happen. We have car accidents and truck rollovers and. You know, just it's a, really a dangerous environment, even though, mm -hmm. you know, you try to be careful. But, you know, you have a lot of people in extraordinary circumstances that we've n had never been in. You know, everybody with us, we had never deployed. None of us had ever deployed. You know, you may have had a few older people that may have been in Vietnam that, you know, had some experience. But for the most part, no one had ever done this before. Mm -hmm. We only read about it heard about it. <laughs> you know, so to actually do it yourself is very different. And this is one of the more, I know Vietnam kind of is still fresh in a lot of Americans' minds sure. because the sure. news media was really covering it pretty hard. You, pretend, you could even argue that it was in a negative light. But uh, this one, the Gulf War was also heavily televised and it was almost more live, you know, live feed coverage, uh, more than um, we even had the potential to do 
during Vietnam. So it was heavily covered. People knew what was going on almost as it was going on. It's tons of crazy visuals from the 90s during this time. I'm very curious to ask about how you helped Iraqi troops. First of all, what can you remember? Was there anything different about taking care of them compared to taking care of U.S. troops? Was there a different culture? Was there a different mindset that they had? And how did they respond to you? One, you, a white woman, helping them. Was there any interesting uh, response to that? Yeah, we we were wondering that ourselves because we knew the difference in the culture. Um, I I definitely remember the first night we came in, we were all in our tents because it was night, and uh, the word got out that we had our first enemy prisoner of war in the ER and injured. And so I wasn't on call that night because, you know, we rotated anesthesia call. So we had our walkie-talkie radio, but, you know, you you can hear what's going on in in the facility. And so we all would sneak down because we we had this bizarre curiosity, like, what does an Iraqi look like, you know? And (laughs) so we snuck down and we were like, there he is. And, and I remember he was, he was pretty badly injured and, and, but I took a a picture because here, this badly injured Iraqi soldier was over here. And of course he was surrounded by a a bunch of, you know, a bunch of us. And then there was an American soldier over here. He wasn't as, as badly injured. So, and there was nobody around this American soldier. We were all had this fascination about this, this, uh, injured Iraqi soldier. And, Really, the look on his face, that the Iraqi guy, I think he wasn't sure what we were going to do to him, mm. you know? And he, I mean, he was conscious, but but he was injured. I think he needed surgery. But um, he had this really weird look on his face like, uh-oh, what's going to happen to me? And then once they realized that we were helping them, you know, we were taking care of them, we were helping them, we weren't going to torture them or anything like that, Um you know, you, you saw this, their face relaxed, and, um, and we took care of them, just like we, we, we took care of the most badly injured, just like you would normally do in a triage situation. So, um, but I just remember him over here and this American over here all by himself, nobody was paying any attention to him, but I mean, he eventually got care, but he wasn't that badly injured, but, um, and then, then more and more started coming in, and then we had lots of, at, at that point, they were men, they were soldiers, and, you know, they were kept in a separate tent, and we took care of them just like we, we did American soldiers. And, um, and luckily, we didn't ever have to come down to, uh, should I, you know, if they're equally injured, who do I take care of, the American or the Iraqi? Well, I'm pretty sure I know which one we would have taken care of first, but mm-hmm. we never had to, to make that decision. So everybody got taken care of appropriately. And, um, but in the big scheme of things, yeah, once they kind of realized the situation and how they were going to be living in our camp or in our compound, um, there was this visible relaxation and, and they, you know, had their own latrines and their own area where they, where they were kept and guarded, things like that. Um, and then eventually we got the civilians in who were uh, more, you know, uh, well, they had injuries too, but they had a lot of illnesses that, that hadn't been addressed. Like well, sure. I, I mean, that area, I, I'd yeah. hate to sound too terrible, but it's like, the healthcare system, which there isn't one, correct. But the quality of living, as far as sanitation goes, is equivalent to the medieval times, is what I've heard. Yeah, you know, a lot yeah. of going to the bathroom in the street, right. uh, little to no plumbing, 
things like that. Right, right. And I remember a patient that I did. This was kind of after things had settled down after the war and stuff. And but we kept getting civilians in. Mm-hmm. They, you know, as Americans kept finding these civilians that needed help, you know, we took care of them. And they, so they came in, and there was this older gentleman. Um, he was he was mm, somewhat obese, but he had a hernia. And, you know, he just, he was in pain a lot, but there was nowhere to go to get that taken care of where he lived. And so, um, didn't speak a lick of English, of course, but we had translators there. And they were so grateful, the civilians, for us taking care of them. And, you know, fixing his hernia had nothing to do with the war other than just, you know, taking care of people. Mm -hmm. And um, so I did a spinal anesthetic because I really couldn't get uh, his history to be comfortable putting him to sleep. Mm -hmm. So... um, so I had the interpreter, you know, tell him, talk him through what I was going to do, blah, blah, blah. He so cooperated. He never moved. He never flinched. Uh, he got his hernia taken care of, and he was so happy. <laughs> oh, I'm <laughs> sure. So, uh, so we did a lot of that kind of stuff, too. You know, whenever we had time, we did elective cases like that. And, and uh, I want to ask in just a second, uh, you know, what did you do with these? Uh, I guess they were prisoners of war from Iraq mm-hmm. after you treated them. But I figured, Gordon, since you're here, we have a, an, an opportunity to ask, what was it like from the outside? Because you, uh, if I understand correctly, you weren't a veteran or anything, correct? That is correct. Yes. What were you doing during this time that she was in the military uh, working in these camps and stuff? What were you doing and what was your perception of what was going on in Iraq? Well, I was in sales, commercial sales of uh, building products. And I can recall the, the day the Iraqi war started, oper- or Desert Storm started, I was sitting at my local watering hole. And they were showing the initial assault on Baghdad. And the... You saw the missiles coming in and the bombings and the uh, anti-aircraft guns, and I thought, oh, my. <laughs> they were just annihilating the city of Baghdad and the defense forces around that, and I just thought, wow. And, of course, the, the war didn't last very long after that, and by the weekend, it was gone. Uh, mm-hmm. So it was uh, the firepower that the Allied troops used was was pretty amazing. And, uh, you know, we, I think at that time everybody understood that the the Republican Guard was uh, elite military forces uh, from the Middle East, and that proved to be very false. It it didn't take long for them to turn tail, and they they ran. They uh, I think the Americans and the Allies were the superiority was w- very overwhelming. So, oh, and, and I watched that develop again. You mentioned how the the war was uh, broadcast live, so I, I watched it develop, and, and it was pretty interesting. Mm-hmm. We are brought to you by Forest Edge Tree Service. If you have trees or tree stumps on your property that you want gone, go nowhere else but Livingston County's premier tree service provider, Forest Edge Tree Service. Your yard is no place for looming dead or damaged trees because it's just a matter of time before they come down, ruining your property, ruining your week, and ruining your bank account. This is exactly why you need to be a responsible adult and hire the services of Forest Edge Tree Service today. Simply give Joe Rudin a call or text at 
815-615-3037 to get a free quote today. Keep your family, pets, vehicles, and neighbors safe and save yourself from a world of headaches when you call or text Forest Edge Tree Service to get those dangerous, looming, troublesome trees off of your property. That's right, that's Forest Edge Tree Service, Livingston County's premier tree service provider. Look, women in the military go underappreciated. It's the truth. And you know what else goes underappreciated? Pizza from Marshalloni's Pizza in Fairbury, Illinois. This pizza is the bomb. And not only that, they also offer a daily happy hour. So if you call between 4 and 5 p.m. and order a pizza, you get the second one of equal or lesser value for free. Restrictions apply. You can even call at 4.45 p.m., order your pizzas, pick them up at 8 p.m., and you will still get that happy hour discount. Amazing. For the most delicious pizzas around, head nowhere else but Marshalloni's Pizza in Fairbury, Illinois. Call them up and place your orders today at 815-692-4602 and pick it up at 405 East Locust Street in Fairbury. And then back to the question I was going to ask, what what did you do with those prisoners of war after you treated them? Well, once they were stable enough, um, somebody, you know, e- evac'd them back. I, I don't really know what happened to them. You know, mm. I, my focus was in the <laughs> operating room, and, you know, they were over there, and once they were healthy enough to move back to probably up to the larger cities, either KKMC or Dahran or wherever they held prisoners at that time. I don't know. Okay, very. so I, they didn't hold them on your camp or anything? No, like no. Once, once they were, you know, well enough to travel, you know, then they would evac them back to wherever they were holding them. Were they handcuffed to, like, their beds or no. things like that? No, no. Well, they could have ran away then. No. Uh, <laughs> well, probably not, yeah, well, I guess, out, if they're in that situation. Out in the desert, they had nowhere to go, but straight out in the desert. So, yeah, that, as far as the eye could see from, from where we were, it was desert. Got it was it. flat. <laughs> so what do you remember about the morale going into that, of the, your fellow troops, of the people working with you in that camp, going into Operation Desert Storm, where you guys pumped up where you're like, all right, this one's for the, I, I guess you were really fighting for the freedom of the people of Kuwait and, you know, for oddly the oil industry as a whole in the world. What do you remember about your feelings going into it as far as patriotism, things like that? Well, you know, I, I, I don't remember thinking of it on, a, on such a large scale because we had a job to do. We're focused. We're a hospital. And our job is to take care of our soldiers first, you know, take care of each other and take care of our soldiers, injured, injured soldiers. So um, it was more, I think, also that none of us had ever done it before. So we, we were like, how do you put up this tent? You know, we're a bunch of nurses, you know, yeah, we go out and train every now and then, but I didn't know how to put up a GP medium, you know? <laughs> so hmm. so the, the guys at, uh, or the soldiers at Fort Polk, I mean, who's, who were stationed with the 15th of AC all the time. And basically the 15th of AC was a hospital folded up in a building until deployment. And then whoop, we had to travel with that and build the hospital. So, which was tents. And we did a lot of digging. I mean, you're focused on your job at the time. I, didn't, I Somebody else had to think about the more worldly things that were happening because of us being there. Um, and it's funny that you say you watched it on TV. I didn't. I was there. I really didn't know what was happening. So that's something interesting yeah. I've heard. I didn't realize that military personnel, when they're in active duty, they don't have access to the same television networks that we do in the United States, yeah. if I understand correctly. Well, they may now, but not in the early 90s. Mm. You know, we didn't even, we had to, to make a phone call. We didn't have laptops and all that kind of stuff. I mean, to make a phone call, this is what I had to do to make a phone call home, was first it was a lottery. 
And then when your day came up, we got on a bus and we had to travel to a uh, telephone station. And then you stood in line. And then when you got a chance, when it was your turn, um, well, first of all, then we got my first time going out. um, The short story is it took me 12 hours to make a phone call. Oh my gosh. Because uh, we got there. Well, we got lost, number one. Well, we no, we were traveling to the phone station, and we happened to pick a day that there was a huge troop movement across some main area. Again, I really didn't know where I was. I was hoping the bus driver did. <laughs> and uh, we, were, we got stopped, not only us, but tons and tons of vehicles were backed up because there was a big, huge troop movement across the area because they were getting ready for the war. I mean, we kind of didn't know that. We knew there was some troop movement going on, but they stopped all traffic. And uh, so we waited, and we waited. It was like, but this is our day. This is our day for a phone call, Mm -hmm. you know? So we waited, and we, oh, it was ours. And we were like, what are we going to do? Is there another phone bank somewhere? Uh, Are we going to go back home? What are we going to, you know? Well, everybody wanted to, we decided, we kind of took a a vote on the bus. Let's go to a different phone bank. We started talking to people that were waiting. So we went to another phone bank, and we literally got stuck in the sand. Oh, like you would get stuck in a, in the mud? Well, there's lots of sand out there. <laughs> right. And, uh, but it, like, and it like gets the soft. wheels were spinning and stuff? Yeah, yeah. Oh, our, our bus kind of sunk in the sand. And I'm just like, I don't even know where I am. Our commander is going to kill us if we don't return. They won't know where we are because we went to a different place from what we thought. You know, and I'm like... Oh, this is not good. What if we? What if we are stuck here overnight? Oh my God! And I was like, we're in the middle of nowhere. There's a. Anyway, somebody finally pulled us out. We found this other phone bank, and then we we got to make our phone call. And then, by the time we got there, you know, with the time change, it was like in the middle of the afternoon here. Hmm. So, I called my parents. No one was home. I left a phone message. I called my sister. She worked. No one was home. I left a phone message. I started calling. I called a friend because I needed um, some more T-shirts and socks and this and that. So I was asking uh, an army buddy, you know, back in the states to send me this stuff. I left a message, and I'm like sobbing and crying on the phone. I never talked to anyone. Oh so my t- god! So twelve oh. hours stuck in the sand, couldn't talk to anyone. By the time I got back to our unit, we got back to our uh, to the hospital at about midnight and i'm like i am never going out for a phone call again that was a horrible experience right <laughs> so that's what we had to do just to try to contact home of course now you email and you know do all kinds of nifty things but we couldn't do that then holy cow so yeah that must have had that must have i feel like it'd be a challenge to maintain good <laughs> mental health when you're out there in the desert doing what you were doing at that time well and and it was because there was no one around us there was one other uh reserve hospital that was within walking distance but it was you know we walked over there one day and visited them and they were all reservists and and i think when they did bring patients in to our area they tended to bring them to us because we were all active duty um but um you know so so they so we you know there was nobody else to to talk to but each other you know i mean you know we were in a, a gp medium so there was like 10 10 of us women you know in one tent and you know, we got over there in January, it's cold at night, and they have a little heater, and then if you want the little heater, you have to go to the other side of the compound to get fuel, and, 
you know, it's a lot of time is spent just maintaining, right. you know, and just to, to, you know, you got to shower every other night. Once we got set up, then you got to shower every other night, you know, one night it's guys, next night it's girls, and, mm-hmm. you know, you alternate and... Um, just to go brush your teeth. It's a major thing. Where's my water bottle? Where's my this? You know, there's no running water, you know, <laughs> that right. kind of thing. So uh, it, it was a lot of extra time just to maintain your, your health and your hygiene and things like that. Um, so some about, you know, going through these harsh conditions, being at war, sometimes even just doing anything difficult with a select group of people, especially when you're in solitude, it creates bonds that last a lifetime. And I think... This is the perfect segue into talking about you are the ambassador of the Military Women's Memorial. Something with men in the military that perhaps you'll agree with is after war, they they still get together. The camaraderie is is true. There's the VFWs, you know, these bonds last for a long time. I know plenty of military personnel or former veterans mm-hmm. that still maintain close ties with their military comrades. So what first of all, tell me how did you get into this position of being an ambassador for the Military Women's Memorial, and what exactly is the Military Women's Memorial? Okay, well, I retired completely um, from all anesthesia work um, in 2014, and I kind of took that first year off and just uh, you know just to relax, and then I was like, well, I'll go in retirement. You need to do something, and. Uh, so a few years went by, and, and actually I saw it on Facebook. Um, the, the Military Women's Memorial started an ambassador program. And even though the memorial has been around since 97, uh, when it was dedicated, so many women, military women, do not even know that this memorial was built for them. And so they... Is it a physical structure? Sorry to interrupt. It, yeah, it's a physical structure. Yep. Okay, that's was, the memorial. Uh-huh. Yep. Okay. And it's, it's not just a memorial, it's really like a museum. And it tells the story of the pro- progress of women that have served since the Revolutionary War up until today. And so that encompasses about 3 million women, probably, that are eligible to register. And so what we mean by we want every single woman who's eligible to register with their memorial. So what that means is we want to know who they are, where they served, when they served, and what they did. And we'd like a picture of them in uniform. And that goes into our database forever into the future. And anybody can look them up um, and see what they did. Because women's stories are so different than men's stories. And that's the purpose of the memorial, is to tell the story of women who have served. Because they're so different from men's. And usually through the years, women's history gets ignored. Mm-hmm. We talk about men. I mean, if you talk about a veteran, what pops into most people's mind? Uh, a male a man, service member. Yeah. A man. So we're trying to, to change that and let people realize that women have served and they have struggled a lot longer to gain the same recognition. Because, you know, back, well, back in the day, all along the way, um, you know, say back at, even in World War II, they needed women. You know, that, that whole thing of, uh, you know, freeing up a man to fight. And so women came in because they were needed to, to do certain jobs. And um, then when the world war was over, 
they were expected to go back home, and they did. They were honorably discharged. They weren't wanted or needed anymore and told to go home and take care of your family and blah, 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 and that's kind of what they did. Mm. Um, but then um, later on when, you know, different things happened throughout the time, but um, then women were um, able to stay in, but when they were, they couldn't be more than 2% of the, the fighting force. Uh, they couldn't go above certain rank. Um, they didn't get the same benefits. They definitely didn't get retirement, that mm. kind of thing. So all that has changed now. All that is gone, but it's taken years for women to, to, to get to that point. So this is what the memorial tells, tells that story. And then, but it also tells individual stories because um, individual stories are also different. And... And again, I think the, you mentioned about the camaraderie with men. I think the camaraderie with women is the same, but it's different than men. You know, when these women get together, I mean, just your your instant friends, you start sharing stories, mm-hmm. and um, yeah, it's and, and that's what happened on on this recent uh, all women's veterans flight. But you know, that's that's a different story. But right, yes. And real but, quick before we move on, that's so many questions I want to ask. It's all so fascinating. <laughs> Uh, I saw you picked up something. Is that yeah, yes. have something to do with the women's uh, military women's it memorial? Does. Yeah. Awesome. Well, yeah. Well, what Let's this, take a look at that. Yeah. Well, what this is, um, this is a, a picture of the memorial. Ooh, bring that. Bring that over this way oh, just this a little way. bit. Uh, other way. I'm oh, sorry. Other way. Sorry. Over here. There we go. Get my coffee out of the way. <laughs> and um, <clears throat> so th- this is the building, and again, it's about a thirty-three thousand square foot building. That didn't start that way, but but uh, a, an Air Force General, um, Brigadier General Wilma Vaught, is the one who is credited. This is we lovingly call it the house that Wilma built, because she was with this memorial for thirty years. She the first ten years fundraising, and then then she was with it twenty years, and then a few years ago she finally stepped aside. But um, she's ninety one now, and but she still comes into the foundation. And, um, and wow. when we were there with the honor flight, she. She came and, and spoke, and um, I have to say, uh, being the Illinois ambassador, I'm the only one that can claim her from our state because uh, she grew up here. Oh, where'd she grow she up? Grew, she grew up in Scotland, Illinois. Scotland, Illinois. So, so help me out. Where's that at? With two T's, it's uh, just a few miles from Chrisman. Okay. Along Illinois 1, Route 1. Yeah. Got it. I wish I knew where that was, but <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. She, um, she did. She was not born in Illinois, but she grew up here f- from an early age, and so she claims Illinois. And mm-hmm. she went. She got her business degree from University of Illinois. So her portrait is somewhere at U of I. We haven't found it yet. <laughs> I know it's somewhere over there. It's a bronze tablet at the yeah. university, which is yeah. their highest honor. Oh wow! Yeah, but I mean, she has several degrees. That's not the only degree, but um, but she she did a lot of first. Um, she was the first to deploy with an Air Force bomber unit. She was an Air Force general. She was the first brigadier general in the comptroller field. And um, so, but anyway, she's the one that ended up building this. And um, so, and I... And that's in D.C.? This in Arlington National Cemetery. This is the ceremonial entrance to Arlington National Cemetery. You oh. can kind of see the graves in the background there in that photo. Uh-huh. Oh, yeah, yeah. So, um, and this this started as, as a wall. This edifice here, they call it a hemicycle because mm-hmm. it's kind of curved. It looks a lot like St. Peter's Square in the Vatican. <laughs> I don't know, I, I yeah. keep getting those vibes. Yeah. But it started, um, that wall had actually been there um, since... Uh, 
I believe 1932, Herbert Hoover dedicated that wall, and they built it as the as the entrance to the Arlington National Cemetery. And this is a women's memorial right well, here, right? Or- that's it now, but it started as a wall. Just a wall. Just a wall. Back in 1932, Herbert okay, Hoover. I'm sorry, I'm asking. No, that's I'm okay. To repeat the stuff. That's okay. He dedicated this wall. So it was built. Somebody thought it would be a good idea to build, you know, a wall and have some, you know, wonderful thing at the entrance to Arlington National Cemetery. I see. So they did. Herbert Hoover dedicated it. And of course, at that time, there weren't a lot of streets, there weren't a lot of cars, and it was a depression. Mm-hmm. So. It actually never got finished as as a wall, and then it never really got used, and it went into disrepair. And for fifty four years, I believe that is correct. It it was just crumbling. Mm-hmm. Over time, it started to crumble, and it was just sort of. Err. So when Wilma Vaught, this Air Force general, took it upon herself to build this memorial and it got to the point of, okay, we need to find where are we going to build it? You know, because real estate around the DC area is very limited, mm-hmm. you know? So she had this vision and, and the story goes, you know, she was looking around, blah, blah, blah. And then it was like, what's that? What's that wall? And anyway, looked into it. So what they did was what a perfect place to celebrate women and women in the past present and future to build a building behind this wall. So anyway, it takes a long, long process to go through to, um, to, to build something like this. But anyway, they finally approved it for this location. And so they left the original wall and, but then they dug out all the earth behind it to build the building. Mm-hmm. So now there's 33,000 square feet of a museum behind this original wall. Wow. Yeah. So it's a, yeah, it's it's the ceremonial entrance. And so um, a lot of people don't realize that's what it is because there's not a big sign in front of it. You know, Mm -hmm. they're kind of, I guess, out of respect for the Arlington and the sanctity of of the place and so on. So a lot of people see that building and, and walk right by it, not realizing that it's the Military Women's Memorial. I was going to say, because I feel like I hadn't even heard of the name, the Military Women's Memorial. And yeah. yeah, perhaps there shouldn't be a sign. You could argue that there could be, and it wouldn't necessarily be disrespectful, but very interesting. I'm surprised I had no idea that that was there, and that kind of adds to the narrative that women go Most women don't know either. Right, <laughs> you know? right, and that their efforts go yeah. underappreciated in the military. Yeah, exactly. Now, when you now you have to go through security to get into Arlington. Mm-hmm. So when you, when you go in that main gate and go through security, it kind of... Sp- Spits you out onto a street, and right across the street there is a sign that says "Women's Memorial" that way. But a lot of people going to visit Arlington, then they go out the other direction towards the graves. So uh, a lot of people miss that one little sign that there is. We are brought to you by Fairbury Indoor Flea, a monthly indoor flea market hosted by Trish's Treasures in Fairbury, Illinois. This flea market is held every second Saturday of every single month from October to May from 9 a.m. to 4 p.m. So that's Saturday, November 13th, December 11th, and so forth. There will be a wide variety of items available at all these events, such as plenty of man cave pieces, vintage and antique collectibles, tools, dishes, jewelry, furniture, cupcakes, and cookies even, and crafts, steamer trunks, 
customized cups, shirts, pens, signs, and so much more. Additionally, at each market, there will be seven, yes, seven local vendors. The second Saturday of each month just got a whole lot sweeter. Again, this will be at Trish's Treasures in Fairbury, Illinois, which is an awesome vintage store. For one-of-a-kind antiques, art, collectibles, furniture, gifts, and also for any and all of your refurbishing and repurposing needs, check out Trish's Treasures in Fairbury, Illinois, located in the old bowling alley on the west end of town, right off of Route 24. We are brought to you by Aftershock Decals and Design in Fairbury, Illinois. From business logos to building signs, Aftershock Decals and Designs in Fairbury creates graphics and prints that will make heads turn. If you need signage for any occasion, Aftershock's team of creative experts are virtually unlimited in their capabilities. They can create the highest quality full and partial vehicle wraps for cars, trucks, trailers, semis, and race cars, as well as small to massive banners for all occasions. They also do yard signs, decals, window perforations, stickers, custom logo designs, and much more. When you need to promote your business, develop your brand, or enhance your image, do it all with the area's most trusted graphic design company, Aftershock Decals and Design in Fairbury, Illinois. Give them a call at 833-332-2548 or pay them a visit at 116 East Locust Street in Fairbury. Something that I want to ask about, it's, it's more of a broad scope question, it's women in the military. In society, there's always going to be like pretty much an equal, ba if you have a healthy society, an equal balance of men and women. Their psychologies, on average, the way they operate, think it, they, they're, it's like yin and yang, you know, the male masculinity, female mind, femininity, and it just keeps balance. It's, it's you know, there's chaos and order, there's sympathy, there's discipline, and I'm, I'm kind of maybe being too general with this or making too many assumptions, but... I feel like if the military is missing this necessary balance, there could be a lot of, um, they're not doing themselves a service by not having as many women as they do men. And this may sound overly feminist, I don't know. But do you think that the military and perhaps the world would be better if women were more involved in military planning, action, uh, perhaps combat, but I won't say combat. Do you think that women should be more involved in that whole world? Um, well, yes, and and that's the the progress that we've made. I mean, uh, more and more women. It, I mean, it wasn't until 1976 that women were allowed to go into the military academies. Mm -hmm. So the first women, the first females in, in the class of 1980 graduated. So you know, even going to the academies and being in leadership roles and things like that. I mean, we're getting there. And and now, as of a, I think a couple of years ago, I don't remember the exact year, all MOSs, all specialties, all jobs in the military were open to women. And so when you think about it, not too long ago, there were two women, well, is it, and it were men more around dedication time um, in 97, but there were two women from World War I. World War I, they were still living. And she spoke at the dedication and said, when I was in the Navy, I wasn't even allowed to vote. So here she was working in the Navy, working oh for her gosh. country, and she couldn't even vote. And she stood with 
Eileen Collins, who was the commander of a shuttle, of a space shuttle. So look at the difference from the woman in the Navy in World War I who couldn't vote, and now she's standing with a space commander. And the, the progress that has been made since then between these two women, I mean, it's phenomenal to think. Where women, men could do all of that all, all the time, right. but women have had to work to get there. So um, I, I know there's you know, a lot of different feelings about women in combat and that. And, and I think right. that's just going to change over time. You know, you're probably not going to change a lot of men's minds. Um, and uh, there's also issues with the military sexual trauma. You know, I'll just say it. There's military sexual, sexual trauma. trauma. Please elaborate MST. on that. Yeah, well, it's called MST. There's a lot of assaults that happen in the military, just like in the civilian world. Like in the barracks and things like that? Yeah, well, wherever. You know, wherever it happens. And um, women have not, and, and, gener- and oftentimes it's, it's the uh, superiors who mm. are assaulting women, young women, usually, in their own ranks or in their own, somebody they, they are in charge of. Right, they're in a dominant position. Correct. So, so the, in the military, when you have their, uh, your chain of command is who you go to when you have a problem, well, how do you go to the problem assaulting you? You know, I mean, so that has to be addressed. And, and I know some women have had some really bad experiences. And, and I know they're working on that. I, I, I'm, in my opinion, and they're not fixing it fast enough. Right. <laughs> but, um, but that has to change. And, and my thought is you need to take that out of the chain of command. I, I don't know if that will happen or not. I mean, they're working on that. I, but um, so... So that's an issue that as women take on any job, you know, it's, it, um, and, and I know it's a problem in the civilian world too, but there are, you know, there are jerks in the military as well mm-hmm. you know, that need to go. Sure. But, um, so, you know, so, you know, everybody has their opinion, but I, I think if women, you know, were in more planning in that, and it, it'll come, it's, it's, it's getting there, you know, but. It's just take time, just like everything. Just like it's been since the Revolutionary War. You know, women have been serving. They they served alongside their husbands, and oftentimes they wanted to serve their country, and they disguised themselves as men. And oftentimes they, they didn't find out until they died, and they were burying them. They wow. discovered it was a woman. You know, there's several stories like that. So, um, yeah, so women women have served. They've just not gotten the recognition that men have. Right, you and know? it's it's fair to say that in the history of the United States, in the last century alone, there we have gone from stark inequality between the sexes to a much better place, at least. And I want to ask you, do you think, we just talked about the um, SM, what was it? MST, MST. Military Sexual Trauma. Do you think that aside from... From that issue that should be addressed and discussed and fixed, do you think that as far as equality of opportunity goes, do you think men and women are equal in the military? Can they do the same things? Are the same opportunities available to both of them? Yeah, the opportunities are available now, and and I agree with it. They should qualify. You know, I mean, just because they're a woman, they don't need to put them in a certain job if they're not qualified. So equality of opportunity, not necessarily equality of outcome. Yeah, the opportunity is there. The opportunity is there now. Mm-hmm. 
And if, uh, you know, we've had some firsts in the last few years because that that has been open up to women, things like, you know, being in some of the elite units. I mean, they have to be able to, you know, swim underwater and do whatever they do to, you know, to, um, to be in some of these elite units. But, you know, they need to not only do it, be able to uh, meet those qualifications for their own safety and for the safety of their buddy. You know, I mean, they need to be able to carry X number of pounds and, and all mm-hmm. that stuff. Not anything I would personally want to do, but some young women want to do that. And if they qualify, then go for it, you know? Right. Um, so it, the opportunity is there. They just have to qualify. And so we're getting more and more women that are that are doing that. In fact, even um, serving at the Tomb of the, of the Unknown, you know, those guards, you know, they have very strict qualifications. And so we've had several women now um, that are a part of that, the old guard unit. And just actually very recently we had, and there's normally three up there. We had all three of them up were women mm-hmm. up there um, recently. I think one was retiring from the unit. So they were able to arrange that, that all of the guards at that moment were women. Awesome. Yeah. Wow. So, so that all, I mean, your opinions, your thoughts and your everything sound very logical. Who could disagree with them really it sounds like what you're saying is extremely sensible so yeah well yeah well i'm sure if you, a lot of men probably who who are very old school probably don't agree hey potentially yeah. you know and and being out in in combat and um you know in remote areas with men and women you know things happen and um you know but whatever and those things you know just have to you have to have protocols you know things are changing and um you know women want to serve their country just like just like men so so I want to transition now to talking about Operation Her Story. Before I try to even, you know, attempt mm-hmm. to explain what it is, I'll just let you do it. What is Operation <laughs> Her Story? And I know that it was in the news recently on yeah. October 6th, I think something happened, but I'll yeah. hand the mic over to you. Yeah, yeah. Well, that was a special project that's been in the works for now a couple of years with, you know, a, a year delay because of COVID, obviously. But um, I actually met Jenny, Jenny Narset. We'll give her the credit. Um, I, as an ambassador, I had a booth set up at uh, the state fair. Um, state fair usually has a Veterans Day. It's on a, a, a Sunday. So we went down. He carried my stuff. And um, so we went down, set up a booth in the veterans tent. And then that's where you're going to get a lot of veterans come through. So I figured I'm going to run into a lot of women veterans and let them know about the Women's Memorial because my goal is to get them to register their story. So that's where I met Jenny one year. And, um, and she had worked with, she, she knows a lot of military people. Of course, she served and retired uh, from the Air Force, but she was also working for the VA at the time. And uh, was chief of staff, so she she knew a lot of military people. She had a lot of contacts, and then um, and then she left that job. And then I really don't remember how we kept in contact, mm-hmm. but it was her idea that women need the recognition to go on on their own honor flight and do an all. She thought she had an original idea. I think to because do, men will take honor flights relatively regularly, right? Yeah, I mean the, the the honor flights are open to anyone. But women don't tend to register to go. Mm. It's you know they they'll take women, but usually there's maybe one, maybe two, or none, no women at all. Um, they just don't register to go. They just don't want to be with a plane full of men, I guess. You know, right? Which is the, I wouldn't the, want to go with a plane full of women. I mean, well, not, right. No offense or anything. Right? No, but and I I, I get it. I get it. 
And so she thought, you know, we need to do this for women. Women need their recognition. Women need to go see their memorials too, which is the, the whole point of these honor flights is to go to D.C. and visit their memorials. And and because uh, many people ne- don't ever have a chance to go to Washington, D.C. So, um, so we did a little research and uh, found out that there were a few other states that had done all women honor flights, all women veterans flights. What were those states, if you can remember just a couple? Well, I rem- Tennessee, I believe, and um, I don't really Florida? recall. I believe Flor- Florida. Well, no, no, no. Fl- Florida's coming up. Florida's coming up next year. But... Oh. Um, so I thought, well, we don't need to reinvent the wheel. What, what did they do to get, to get an all-woman flight going? And um, so anyway, we, we started. And my reasoning for getting involved with it, I had an ulterior motive. <laughs> I wanted to get, at, generally it's a plane of about 100 women. So my ulterior motive was I want to get access to these 100 women because I want to get these women registered with their memorial. Mm-hmm. So in order to do that, then I, I got involved and became part of the, Well, we became part of the team. We went up to Chicago, and I remember our first meeting, there was like, well, 30 people around at this huge table. And we were around the table, and Jenny, had, Jenny knew all these people, so she got them all together, like, who would like to join our team? And, and we have a lot of things to do, a lot of planning to do to get this flight off the ground. And so we became our own special project. We weren't exactly sure what we were going to do. She invited um, Honor Flight Chicago because they're, I'm the only person on that team from downstate. Everybody else was around the Chicago area. And um, so uh, she invited Honor Flight Chicago to join that meeting to see how much they wanted to get involved or not. And because we were going to fly one way or another, mm-hmm. you know, <laughs> it was going to be a little bit easier to kind of partner with Honor Flight Chicago if they would do that with and us. Honor Flight Chicago was doing Honor Flights for men prior to that? Well, they were doing it for anyone, but... Oh, for anyone, that's right. Yeah, I keep forgetting that. Yeah, but they were the first hub in, in the state of Illinois. Illinois, I think, now has about seven hubs that fly, mm. but um, they were the original hub. In fact, I went on the second honor flight with my dad in 2008, and I was his guardian. Lloyd, right? Lloyd, yep, yep. Mm. So, um, yeah, so we were on the second honor flight, and I just kind of happened to know about it from a, a friend. I believe this whole honor flight deal started in Michigan, and I had a friend from Michigan, and that's kind of how I knew about it. And I looked it up and realized Chicago was flying. So I said, hey, Dad, we're, you know, let's go. He's like, okay. So we registered. But then, the, you know, the, the issue with being from central Illinois when they fly out of Chicago, we, you know, you have to be there at 4 in the morning. So we went up the night before, stayed overnight, and then you get back late, so we stayed overnight again. But... Um, so then other hubs opened up in Illinois to make it a little bit easier for others. But anyway, after this main meeting, so that's kind of, you know, kicked off our efforts to get, to get this going. And at the time, of course, we didn't have a name. And so then we decided we, we need to call our project something. What should we call it? You know, so, so everybody thought and had different ideas and we came up ultimately with Operation Her Story. Pretty good and, name. Yeah, not bad. And, um, you know, kind of like history, her story. Yeah. So, um, so, we, so we were a special project, and basically, and then we had to uh, earn our own money. We had to do fundraisers and ask for donations and all that, and, and Honor Flight Chicago did partner with us. So, you know, it was a little bit easier to use their infrastructure, obviously, and their connections with, 
you know, the honor flight system in Washington, D.C. And of course, they're a well-oiled machine. They've been flying since 2008. So, mm-hmm. uh, but this was going to be different because we were going to go to the Women's Memorial. Their normal flights don't stop at Arlington at all. So we wanted to go to the Women's Memorial, and um, we also wanted to go to the Changing of the Guard at the Tomb of the Unknown. So, um, so that was very different planning. So we just had a little bit different itinerary than their usual itinerary because we were a plane full of women. Mm-hmm. And, uh, so as the ambassador, what I did was, um, I flew out pretty much at the same time they flew. Um, uh, but we, uh, Gordon and I flew into, uh, Washington national and, uh, they fly into Dulles. So they've got an extra hour. Uh, you know, bus ride back in. So we beat it to the memorial at about 10:15 and helped them set up tables because we had essentially we were planning for 265 people at at the women's memorial and um, for lunch. So we had uh, we set up tables. We um, had a little program ready to go, and uh, we so when they the women arrived, you know they grabbed their lunch, and I had ordered. I think 320 meals to help cover the lot of volunteers. Mm-hmm. I mean, this wouldn't happen without a ton, hundreds of volunteers as well. So it was really cool to see six busloads drive up down the main avenue up to the memorial, and all these women start coming off. We're like, they made it, yay! Mm-hmm. So uh, they grabbed their lunch and uh, you know sat down, and we had a little program with them, and um, you know had a few little speakers, and then we had one. Um, well, we had two women from World War II. Uh, one was 104. Oh, wow. And she was going to be 105 in nine days after the flight. So she turned 105. Holy and then God. we had another one who was 99, and she was going to turn 100. She will turn 100 in December. And uh, the, the one that was 99, she wore her World War II uniform, and she was walking and talking, and she was a spitfire. Oh, that's so, awesome. Yeah, so we presented those. There's another program that the Military Women's Memorial has called um, A Living Legend. So I submitted them to be living legends. So while we were there at the luncheon, um, we, we presented those proclamations to those two. And, and it was pretty cool. The memorial um, had a birthday cake for them since mm-hmm. their birthdays were, were really soon after that. So, so we had a birthday cake for them. And, um, yeah, it was, it was really nice. That is incredible. Yeah. In- so. Oh, yeah. Continue. Yeah. Sorry. No, so then we had a, I had ordered a large uh, wreath, you know, for the, well, originally the plans changed, but originally we were, they were going to be able to lay a wreath at the Tomb of the Unknown and due to scheduling issues uh, that didn't happen but but I had a very large wreath and it had um, Operation Her Story on it and it said Illinois All Women's Veterans Flight you know on the little banners and so we went outside in front of the memorial had the official photo taken of the whole group you know with the wreath and it was really it was really cool so everybody wanted their picture with the wreath you know and it was fun and um, so then, you know, they had a little bit of time to kind of mill around at the memorial, and a lot, of, lot had never been there. A friend of mine, actually from here in Bloomington, um, she had been at the dedication back in 97, and she hadn't been back since. So mm. she was just telling me the other day, she had a photo of herself back in 97 when it was, you know, an inaugurated, and then she had her photo taken now. I said, I want to see those photos side by side. <laughs> <laughs> she was, well, they're a little different looking. I said, it's okay. <laughs> 
Um, so that was really cool to be able to to you know, revisit that at the same spot. Yeah, hugely meaningful to these women veterans. I mean, Absolutely. they've probably never done something like that. And yeah, incredible stuff. We are brought to you by Tri-County Carpet and Flooring Sales and Installation in Fairbury, Illinois. Tri-County Carpet and Flooring in Fairbury is the premier flooring store throughout Livingston, McLean, and Ford counties. From choosing the perfect flooring to measuring an installation, Tri-County ensures top quality products and services. Their trained professionals boast precise measurements, straight cuts, and perfect fits, while their showroom houses a multitude of gorgeous, top quality, name brand carpet and flooring options in the latest styles and colors that are durable and long lasting. With free estimates, design consultation, and contractor and multi-room discounts, Tri-County in Fairbury is your one-stop shop for all of your home and business flooring needs. Pay them a visit at 19 Jan Lane in Fairbury, Illinois, right off of Route 24, and give them a call at 815-692-3666. Tri-County Carpet, your flooring paradise. We are brought to you by Fairview Haven Retirement Community in Fairbury, Illinois. Fairview Haven is an apostolic Christian community where choice is valued, growth is encouraged, and life abounds. Their team strives by the grace of God to provide the highest quality of life to all those that they serve without regard to race, color, religion, or their ability to pay. Fairview has created a haven that supports the spiritual, physical, mental, and emotional needs of all who call it home. Here they seek to embrace life and honor the dignity of all of their residents and their right to make choices for themselves in a safe and nurturing environment. This unprecedented level of care extends also to their staff, who are loved, cared for, and appreciated beyond measure. If you want to be a light in our world, if you think you have the skills to provide great care for others, and if you want to have an immense and positive impact on the lives of many of our most beloved community members, then consider joining the team at Fairview Haven in Fairbury, Illinois. Loving as Jesus loves, Fairview Haven. First of all, okay, you guys got married a couple weeks ago. Congratulations, we right? Yes. Thank you. Yes. Yeah, well, I think we're on day 15. <laughs> 15, yeah. Well, that is awesome. Yeah. And talk about, you know, how have you, what's it been like seeing the evolution of this whole thing, seeing Jill work on these, on the stuff she's been working on, how committed she is to it, and, and what you've done to kind of help out? Well, I have um, just kind of been there to support her um, in whenever she goes to a, a show or a convention and, and speaks, I'll usually tag along. And besides the pop-up that we have behind us, we'll um, take handouts so that people know where to go to register. Uh, I'm kind of the, I man the women's booth if she That's has to funny. leave or something. <laughs> man the and, women's booth. Uh, oh, and, yeah. and I know pretty much the, uh, the approach that needs to be taken to get these women to appreciate their memorial, and uh, it it's it's incredible to me how many women of military backgrounds will come to us at our booths, and they don't know that this this military memorial exists for for them, uh, and so we get into the you know I can 
know enough about it, I can get into the history of it, mm-hmm. uh, telling them that it is really for them. You know, only about 10% of the women who have been in the military have registered. I want to help Jill get more and more of them uh, registered. So it's, uh, it's, to me, never having served in the military, it is very interesting to be around military women and their backgrounds and hear them talk about it. Jill's also heavily involved in the American Legion, the Honor Guard with the American Legion and the VFW. So I, I just enjoy supporting her in the veterans uh, in the veterans' backgrounds, in the veterans' uh, agenda, or whatever you might call it. So, I, uh, I just enjoy it. Um, when Operation Her Story came about, she asked me if I wanted to go and be involved. I said, absolutely. Well, it's so awesome. we were, uh, you know, we've been to Chicago. I don't know how many times, six or times, six yeah. or seven to to talk initially about Operation Her Story, or at that time, just an all women's honor flight. And the initial story, I would say that uh, Chicago Honor Flight was not very interested. They actually were kind of negative. I, I think because it was taking away possibly an honor flight for they had already had scheduled. So the the women that you know these guys have to register usually they'll be on the list for a few years before they get called to be on an honor flight. Mm-hmm. So they were not. Too interested in in bringing a women's all women's honor flight in to take places of men to, who to bump had, their men to bump you know. the men who had been and, and that's fair that's sure. fair mm-hmm. so that's why it it turned into Operation Her Story an all women's honor flight and we raised the funds uh, through there were a few very generous donors and um, it just evolved from there over time and uh, it eventually became. Uh, the news media got involved. Um, there were uh, a number of people involved with the honor flight. And uh, I think there was a woman by the name of Bonnie who knew from the Chicago honor flight, knew how to get a hold of the media and, and you know, draw them in. So uh, we happened to miss. Yeah, they had a big media presentation about it and um, big press release. And we were in New Zealand at the time. <laughs> so it right. just killed me to miss that. Yeah. yeah. You know, when all the news stories, news people showed up and the TV stations. Yeah. So it got a lot of publicity while we were gone. Yeah. And then as soon as we got back, uh, COVID yes. hit. And so we were lucky to even get home. That was March 8th. Yeah. The honor flight was scheduled to go in, I believe it was October 7th of 2020. Of 2020. And uh, I had bought my tickets and... Jill was going to go, and I was going to meet him out there and do exactly what we did. And, uh, of course, then everything got put off. And uh, Yeah, we I, we actually had a fundraiser here planned in, in Bloomington. And uh, then, of course, we Things did not go it. smoothly. No, no. So I still have things sitting in my spare bedroom that was supposed to be part of that, you know, uh, fundraiser here. Yeah, but, silent auction. Yeah, silent auction stuff. But, uh, yeah. So, anyway, it... Eventually, I think some people in Chicago, there were a couple of attorneys on our big um, uh, group uh, team, and I think they went to some of their friends and said, hey, this is what's going on. Can mm-hmm. you write a check? And and they did. 
you know, when they found out what, what it was all for. So eventually we, we did get it. And then we had a very generous donor, um, Jennifer Pritzker of the Pritzker Military Museum. Is that, is that J.B. Pritzker's uh, I believe a cousin. cousin. I believe a yes. cousin. Okay. And um, so, yes. And, and she has her own museum up there, which we have visited. It's a phenomenal museum. And uh, one time we had one of our meetings in one of her meeting rooms. Um, so she's been very supportive and was a, a very generous donor. So, um, so that gave us a good head start on, mm-hmm. on funds. But, you know, we needed more. And, and um, so, uh, you know, a lot, there were a lot of donors eventually. And so then we had a, a pre-flight. Jenny had a pre-flight party um, a few weeks before the actual flight. And so there was tons of people there, and uh, about half of the veterans that flew um, were there at the pre-flight party. So a lot of them got to meet each other. I know some of the ones from Bloomington, you know, drove up to the party, and it was in uh, Naperville, I think. Yes. And uh, at the VFW up there, and uh, it was full, packed, packed. Mm-hmm. A lot of supporters, uh, the veterans, and all. And so they had a little little program there. And Legion riders were there. Oh there yeah, was a, quite a few. Yeah, of them. They, she rolled out the red carpet, and uh, as, <laughs> did she really? Oh, oh yes. yeah, oh yeah. That's she, awesome. Yeah, she bought a red carpet, rolled right. it up. And yeah. the veterans would walk up the red carpet. Of course, there were supporters on each side cheering them on. So we were cheering. And were, it, I love it. It became it was, very emotional. I mean, yeah. th- these women did not expect people to be so supportive of, of their service. And so as they walked up the red carpet, we were cheering, and some of them got really teary-eyed. Oh, yes. I'm oh, sure. Yeah. This and, is probably newfound support, oh, yes. the likes of which they'd never seen yeah. before. True. And, um, yeah, and the 99-year-old came. She walked up on her own steam. And the the 104-year-old didn't want to attend because she didn't want a chance getting COVID and then missed the flight. Oh, right, right. So she stayed home. But, um, yeah, so the bagpipers were there. The Legion riders were there. I mean, there was such tremendous support for these women veterans. I mean, that more than they expected. And this was all on Jenny. She uh, she did this, and she she had a few donations, but for the most part, she paid for this party, mostly herself. In, oh, wow. In, in honor of her husband. And she had just lost her husband a few months before. And people had donated in memorial to him uh, some money. So she used that money f- for these women. Oh, wow. She sounds incredible. Yeah, she is. Well, okay, we're getting towards the end of this conversation. Mm-hmm. I just want to ask a few questions to wrap things up. First of all, how many women attended this Women's Honor flight then? Okay, we had 93 on the flight. Okay, and how much money did you have to raise? 93 no. tickets is no picnic. Uh, about about $150,000. Yeah, yeah, for just the basic flight. Just to fly, to, you know, charter with Southwest. Not bl- including, like, lunch and stuff. Yeah, lunch and all that's extra. And, you know, we she wanted to feed these women you know, some decent food. Mm-hmm. So we had little gourmet lunch boxes, you know, which were not inexpensive. And then we bought for the, uh, veter- or the uh, volunteers as well. And then we had water and iced tea. And then, uh, oh, she had bought shirts and... All kinds of things, you know, hats. For, and yeah. hats and um, a- extra and above, you know. So they, they got lots of fun things and coins. Um, I think Honor Flight gives coins. Um, I'm not really sure because I wasn't on the flight. <laughs> we, we were out there, you know, mm-hmm. kind of running, semi-running the show while they were there. Um, but, yeah, so 93 total. And I, I think our original number the year before was up to 100 and. 
18, 18 or something yes. like that. But then with the year, some, some women got sick or ill, some had COVID, some, mm-hmm. you know, so it got down to the final number was 93 that actually flew. There was one veteran from, that was scheduled to go on a flight from Champaign who got COVID 10 days before. Yeah, so, so she, she, she couldn't, couldn't go. go. She'd been planning for two years oh, to go. Oh, what a bummer. I know. Oh, I, so I don't know how many that happened to, but you know, whatever. Just, it happens. So, mm-hmm. yeah. And do you plan on doing more of these in the future, the honor flights? Well, um, not at this point. I think... Um, Operation Her Story, I believe, is in the works to become their own nonprofit. Because, see, we, we had to work with Honor, with Honor Fly Chicago working with us. They are the nonprofit. We are not mm-hmm. yet. Operation Her Story. So um, one of the co-founders, uh, her name is Liz. Um, she's an attorney as well. And she, I believe, is working on, uh, and I think it's a process to, to establish a nonprofit. So... But I believe Jenny wants to move forward with doing other things to get women's visi- women veteran visibility out there. Mm-hmm. May, maybe not necessarily by a flight, but um, she was mentioning, I was talking to her last night about uh, maybe taking bus trips to different uh, military museums. Like there's a huge World War II museum in New Orleans, maybe taking a trip down there, doing an overnight. I mean... We did talk about doing an overnight in Washington, D.C., because it's, it's a long day. You know, you have to be at the airport at 4 a.m., and then you get back in the evening. Yes, you know, long day for anybody. And then when you're 100, <laughs> plus or minus, or even, you know, it's like, it's tiring. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, we talked about doing an overnight, but just the logistics and all that stuff, it didn't work out this time. So um, I think she would like to do different overnights for, for maybe different trips or, or different, you know, projects. Who knows? Um, but uh, so, yeah, we're not really sure where Operation Her Story is going. It's still evolving. So, Well, for anyone watching who's, who's deeply moved and interested in, in the movement as a whole of recognizing, giving the credit that female veterans deserve how can they contribute in some way or just help out with the movement and getting getting this recognition for female veterans yeah. and things like that the biggest thing they can do is register their story and uh they went through uh they got a a grant where they upgraded their um computer system just in the last couple of years and uh now, imagine for 20 years, they had the same computer system that they had since 1997. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't working too well. Right. So they got that upgrade. So now they go to womensmemorial.org. That's womensmemorial.org and register their story. And you can do it and you can submit your photo and all that. And so then this is what it eventually looks like is, you know, who you can you see? Yes. So who you are, you submit a photo, you can tell your story of what you did. And um, this, this is just an example. She was the first woman general ever. And she, we didn't have a woman general until 1970. That's how long it took for, mm-hmm. I think the law changed in 1967 because women were capped. They couldn't go but by law. They couldn't be a person of a general rank. Right. So um, she happens to be, this is Anna Mae Hayes, who was chief of the Army Nurse Corps at the time. Now, the Army Nurse Corps was a little bit different. That came into being in 1901, but those were nurses. Uh, Women who did other things besides nursing, it took them a little bit longer until 1948 to be a permanent 
member of the military, where the military said, okay, we're done with you. You can go back home now, you know, general discharge or, or, or honorable discharge, but like, we don't need you anymore. So you can go home. And uh, so now, um, you know, again, when things are, all things are open to, to women now. And, um, you know, we have, a, we have a lot of female generals now. So, um, but anyway, the best thing to do is register your story and, um, and tell a friend. Actually, tell three friends. Because <laughs> everybody, every woman that's ever served, they've got buddies. Tell your buddies. Right. Get them to register. And I tell you, you have to tell people over and over because you say, well, I'll do that when I have time. Well, you have to make time. Because you, your story deserves to be there. Because these women that are, you know, commanders of space shuttles and, and doing all these wonderful things now, they're standing on the shoulders of women like this, women who faked being a man in, you know, back in the revolution. Yeah, we all are standing on each other's shoulders to get to where we are today. And register your story, not just for your own sake, but for the sake of women everywhere who have served, because Absolutely. we need society to recognize that women have played a massive role. And if you don't submit your story, you're making the whole number go down. So it's yeah. like... Well, or, or who else is going to tell your story? Exactly. Uh, men who probably won't tell the story the way a woman would, because they don't understand women in the military, or it won't get told at all, you know? So um, this, and, and a lot of people, this is also an education center. So a lot of people go to the memorial to, to study, you know, women's service and to study what, what women have done in the military. And this is where they find the information. This is the largest repository of memorabilia and stuff ev anywhere in the world of, of women's stuff. They have like parachutes that women made into uh, wedding gowns in World War II. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's the craziest stuff they have. And, wow. and they don't really have the room to, to display it all, but it's just amazing to, to sit there and listen to them talk about the stuff that they have, you know, the, um, in their, in their uh, storage area. So, and letters and stuff. I think they're still finding things. A lot of people send stuff in, you know, and uh, they go, they don't have time to go through, do through it all. I and mean, they're slowly going through everything that they have. And they, every once in a while, they find a real gem, you know, of, of interesting stories. But, um, yeah, so that's, that's the best thing they can do is to register their own story and then tell their friends. And um, so that, that's my biggest thing. And, you know, we want to educate, empower, and uh, get women's history out there. And let, even, you know, women that are serving today don't realize the legacy that they're standing on. Absolutely. And, um, yeah, so we, so we have to educate the current women one additional thing or a fact is if when people visit the memorial, uh, if they're registered, they can pull up a screen just like this. They can go in and look for their grandmother if she's been in the service. Oh. They can look for, I had a niece go out there, took a, a class from Chicago a couple of years ago, and she went and looked up Jill. on the And so they pop up on a big screen, and you can see all about what they have registered. You can oh, see the wow. pictures. And uh, uh, Jill... Once she's been doing this, there was a, a few years ago, a gentleman registered his mother but couldn't figure out how to register a picture. So he sent the picture to Jill, and it was his mother with Clark Gable in World War II. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. <laughs> she was a nurse in Clark Gable, and then, of course, there were three or four 
military men standing behind him, and not one of them was looking at Clark Gable. <laughs> <laughs> they were they were all looking at his mother. That's funny. <laughs> I remember that. Yeah, yeah it's pretty yeah. interesting. Yeah. So, so, and that's a, to a good point. You can also register a deceased family member. Right. You know. Right. So if you're and it's amazing. Even uh, every year. I, at the corn festival, you know, I'm as a member of the American Legion, I go out with the Legion and I, I put up my women's stuff and people walk by and they'll, they'll stop. And, and I'll say, uh, well, do you, you know, do you know any, any woman who has served? Oh, my grandmother or my, oh, she, she's still, no, no, she's deceased. Well, you can register her. I can. Yes, you can. <laughs> and you go in and you register what you know, and at least she will forever be in her memorial. Mm-hmm. You know, so so I encourage people to register, you know, their um, yeah deceased family members for sure. Because we're looking for those three million. And out of those three million, we're still just under 300,000. So we have a long way to go, which is one of the reasons they started the ambassador program. And actually this year, they had a big registration campaign to, to get that number up. And then we were, you know, really kind of you know, curtailed by COVID, it's kind of hard to get out there, you know, but, um, you know, but we're back out on the trail and now that you know, things have opened up again and, uh, you know, just anybody who walks by, if they'll talk to me, I'll tell them <laughs> and, and, you know, give them information, how to do it and things. And, uh, you know, always contact me, you know, um, I'm, I'm open. I, I am your ambassador for the state of Illinois, so I will help anybody get registered if you have a problem. It's a little bit easier now to register from home and to submit all this from home. So not only does it pop up on a big screen at the memorial, but you can have the same thing pop up at home, which mm-hmm. which wasn't before until they got the um, computer upgrade. So you can see it at home. You can you can order your own you know thing if you want that. Or um, yeah, a lot of people will get it, say for their mother who served, you know, get one of these. And um, yeah, it's very, very meaningful because a lot of women have served and then they come home and they never spoke about their service. Right, you know? right. And, and a lot of, yeah, they talk about like moms and daughters go and then, you know, pop up mom on the screen and daughters will go, mom, I never knew you did that in the military. <laughs> you know, then they don't talk about it. You right. know, veterans tend not to talk about, you know, sometimes it's not good memories and so you don't talk about it. Or, or like I say, women just kind of went back home and, you know, did the cooking and cleaning and helped raise the kids and did all that stuff and didn't talk about what they did. Right. But they raised their right hand. Mm-hmm. There you was going to say something. I was. Um, if for any of your listeners that Jill is more than happy to come and talk to civic organizations. She's done that on a number of times. Of course, we didn't do it the last year and a half or so, but uh, the DAR, the uh, Rotary Clubs, she's more than happy, even schools. She's spoken at schools. Uh, more than happy to get the word out for the military women. Yeah, absolutely. That's what awesome. I do as an ambassador. I think if you can maybe so. that one quote there that's... Yeah. Well, this is kind of the um, a quote that um, that I like to end on if we're at that point, but this was from a uh, from an Army nurse and she from World War II, and she said... Let the generations know that the women in uniform also guaranteed their freedom. That our resolve was just as great as the brave men who stood among us. And the victory, our hearts were just as full and beat just as fast as theirs. And that the tears fell just as hard for those we left behind. 
Sorry, Absolutely. I get emotional. <laughs> oh, it's beautiful. It's deserved to be gotten yeah. emotional about. Yeah. yeah. Great way to end it. Gordon, Jill, thank you so much for your time today. It's been an, an absolute pleasure. I learned a lot. It has Great. been very important, and I think the listeners are going to get a lot out of this. I hope so. Well, I hope thank so. You, Paul. If I get one registration, it was worth it. Let's <laughs> make a lot more than one. Yeah. Let's challenge. <laughs> get out there and register your service, gals. Awesome. Okay. Right. Thank you. Thank you. Thank it you. It was a Paul. pleasure. Yes, thank you. All right. <laughs> That was a wrap. Oh, that was a great. I cannot get that through that without me. crying. <laughs> it tears me up too. So. I know. It's like, I absolutely. Love I get it. the gut quiver every time. <laughs>